0: Welcome. This is the Black Dahlia and the Blue Dahlia podcast. I'm your host, Scott Tracy. On May 12, 1947, the velvet tigress rides again as Winnie Ruth Judd escapes from the Arizona State Hospital for the Insane. It's the third time in eight years. She surrenders quietly when caught hiding at the edge of an irrigation canal in an orange grove outside of Phoenix, Arizona. The second headline story of the day is a crime of rape and murder. The Los Angeles Daily News refers to the crime as the sixth victim of the season's sex wave murder. Note the paper uses the word season in the same manner I might say baseball season, as if body dumping is a Los Angeles sporting event crazy use of language. Returning to the facts, as reported, the woman is found after dawn in the Signal Hill area of North Long Beach, her lifeless, still-warm body lying face-up and spread-eagled in the dust of an oil-field access road. She was discovered by a company patrolman coming to work at daybreak. The petite brown-haired woman was garroted with a torn cloth strip. This uncommon weapon had a blue and white floral pattern, and the early reporting suggests it's likely to be torn from a man's cotton pajamas. Only the Los Angeles Daily News has a photo of this torn colored cotton piece, and there's a knot in the middle of the strip. It's a rope-like drawstring, still tied in a bow like one might see on a surfer's pair of old-school board shorts. In the picture in the Daily News, the rope is as thick as the detective's finger, half-inch in diameter. A thicker cotton rope one might associate with boating rather than sleepwear. The victim's expensive peacock blue dress was ripped in half and pulled up. Her bra and panties were torn. No purse was found, and one white open-toe shoe was missing. A three-quarter-length coat was crumpled underneath her body. Footprints and tire tracks recorded in the soft dirt of the body dump location indicate the woman was killed elsewhere. Police surmised the clothing was tossed from the vehicle and then the body dragged from the cabin onto the ground. Newspapers highlight Black Dahlia's similarities and, like many others, This woman has been bludgeoned and strangled. However, she is raped and not mutilated. Elizabeth Short was mutilated and not raped. All of these factors that make each murder unique are ignored when the papers are selling the werewolf angle to the lone women murders. Newspapers need a story that sells papers and editors know the Black Dahlia headline, sold the most papers in recent history. The Los Angeles Daily News claims the Trells' dead body, like the Black Dolly, was found in a vacant field. Mm, no. Norton Avenue is a residential suburban area that had an undeveloped lot in it. It's not a dirt road next to an oil derrick like this murder, or a gravel pit like Gertrude Landon, or adjacent to railroad tracks like Evelyn Winters. The Hollywood Citizen News says these other victims were hacked by a sadistic killer, like the Black Dahlia. Certainly these murders are cruel and gruesome. Only Elizabeth was tortured and bisected, and only the killer of the Black Dahlia talks to the press on the phone and mails physical evidence to the police. There is no lipstick murder avenger. There is no butcher of Kingsbury Row avenger. The Long Beach police hold a press conference at headquarters with evidence present and something interesting happens. The local reporters in the room notice a laundry service tag on the three-quarter length coat that lay under the victim, and the reporters follow up on that lead to discover the local cleaner and the identity of the victim. She is Laura Trelstad, five foot four, one 105 pounds. 37 years old. She is the mother of three small children, Audrey, age 8, Janet, age 7, and Tommy, age 3. Her husband identifies the body, saying, Yes, that's Laura. The body dump location is a mere 12 blocks from their home. According to her autopsy, Laura Trell's dad's skull has been fractured and she suffered multiple hemorrhages to the brain. She was drunk, her alcohol level 2.0. It should be noted that there is a vulnerability for smaller women in these types of crimes. Predators perceive a weaker victim is going to be easier to handle. For example, tiny Louise Springer is only 99 pounds. A smaller victim is affected by alcohol faster as well. Long Beach police learned Laura wanted to celebrate and go dancing on Mother's Day. She told her husband, If you won't take me out on Mother's Day, I'm going to dance by myself. Laura is next seen in the company of three young sailors who entered a tavern on First Street in Long Beach and became friendly with Mrs. Trell's dad at the bar. After a few beers, the four leave together. The bartender at the 322 Club said, he didn't know the names of the sailors, but he could identify them as they had been regular customers over the past 10 days. The men looked young, and he had examined their Navy ID cards, and he remembers the sailor that paid attention to Mrs. Trell's dad had a birth date of April seventeenth, nineteen 1926. Police locate Sailor First Class, Harry Packard, and arrest him on the 13th only to release him on the next day. Packard states that he took Laura Trelsdad to a Huntington Park bus stop. Driver Cleve Downey remembers Laura getting on and off his bus. Downey is on vacation now in Kansas City, and the Long Beach police reach him on the telephone. Downey remembers dad disembarked at 36th Street, 14 blocks north of her stop. Trell's dad has words with Doughty about him allowing her to miss her stop. Doughty recalls a tall, well-dressed man wearing a snap-brim hat followed Laura Trell's dad from the bus. Because a car is used to dump the body and the tall, well-dressed man is on foot, police believe the killer lives within walking distance from the bus stop and they set up three roadblocks stopping hundreds of cars in what turned out to be a futile search for a tire-tread match. The Long Beach police locate an ex-con who had been sent to San Quentin for sexual assault. His return sparked a special interest when the murder occurred, and the police noted to the press this ex-con quit his job one day before the murder. The Wilmington Press-Journal goes so far as to declare that this man is the slayer, The dump site is at the 3100 block of Locust Avenue. The Trail's Dead home is at 2211 Locust. This ex-con was living in the 14-block area between the home and the dump site, so you can understand why the press and the police think there's a significant possibility that this man is the killer. However, they are unable to locate the ex-con at his address. Nevertheless, Chief Martin announces to the press that arrest is forthcoming. However, the ex-con's name is never stated in the press and the situation is never spoke of again in the newspapers. I assume the lead is a dead end. Laura Trelstad has a twin sister, Mrs. Lydia Ramstad of Salem, South Dakota. Mrs. Ramstad is coming to town for her sister's funeral. Police Captain Martin understands she looks just like her sister and he plans to take photos of Lydia to show possible witnesses. Mrs. Ramstead agrees to do more. She will accompany Captain Martin on a round of night spots in the vicinity of the crime. However, when Lydia arrives in Long Beach, the police realize she is not an identical twin and therefore do not take Lydia out for a dive bar tour of North Long Beach. The police have no more leads. The next newspaper Black Dahlia reference occurs on May 23rd. Robert Smith is driving along a lonely Norwalk road at night and saw a woman in his headlights. There seems to be trouble. She's fighting with a man in a ditch at the side of the road. Smith pulls over. The newspaper will proclaim that he saved this woman from being the next victim in the Black Dahlia sex murder pattern. Mrs. Violet Asher, 43, is bleeding and bitten as a man's fingernails have shredded her stomach and his teeth have broken through the skin of her thighs. She's a mother of a six-year-old boy. She tells the reporters that are interviewing her at General Hospital How much she thanks Robert Smith. If it hadn't been for him getting there just then, that man would have killed me, she said. The man that would have killed her drives off as soon as he sees Smith stop to investigate, but Smith remembers the plate number, and the police locate Henry Alfred Hampton, age 39. He's a construction worker who lives in North Long Beach. He's arrested at his home on suspicion of rape. Because of the similarity of circumstances and locations, Hampton is questioned by Long Beach officers in connection with the mutilation death of Lord Trelsdad. But Long Beach police compare the treads on his tires to the set of clear tire prints, and it's not a match. Equally, the LAPD dismisses Hampton as a Black Dahlia suspect. Officers say Hampton admitted taking Mrs. Asher from a tavern and going to her Long Beach home for a drink, then later going for a ride. Hampton claims he was so drunk he's unable to recall everything that happened. Mrs. Asher admits leaving with a man that night, but she doesn't remember the name of her companion. There are a couple of oddities that are worthy of our discussion but not part of the headline story where Robert Smith is the hero. When Mrs. Asher is taken to the police station, she's booked for a public intoxication before the details of the violent crime become clear. Mrs. Asher has been in a similar situation previously. In 1944, she declined to prosecute a man on a rape charge and that man was released. After the arrest of Hampton, there's no more news of the crime or news of any trial. July 8, 1947 is another day of two headlines. The headline in the San Bernardino Sun, Flying Disc Found. The headline reassures us that the disc is in army possession. It's the Roswell UFL story breaking. The other headline on the same page is the murder of a young woman. She's been tossed into the street from a moving car, northeast of downtown Los Angeles. In the Daily News, the headline is Girl 20, Slain in L.A. Mutilation Crime. This young woman is found just before dawn, a dozen blocks from City Hall on North Main Street. Newton Joshua, a postal clerk, found the nude body laying in the gutter on North Main Street near an elementary school. She had been strangled by her silk stocking. The woman's breast was macerated into a pulp. She'd been struck in the face, the deep lacerations on her back police come to believe were caused when the body was thrown out of a moving automobile as it headed south on Main Street. The young woman is identified as Mrs. Rosenda Mondragon, age 20. She'd been arrested previously for drunkenness a year prior. When the police remove the silk stocking, they notice Rosenda wears a Catholic medallion meant to protect the wearer from harm. William Moore described in the newspaper as a vegetable store clerk told investigators that he saw Mrs. Mondragon call a taxi from his store at Mission and North Main. It's 2.15 a.m. A A man in his late 20s drives up in a 1936 dark green coupe and speaks to William Moore, asking for directions. He's lost. Then Rosenda suggests the man might wish to drop her off at 9th and San Pedro, and he agrees. Moore says then that the girl canceled the taxi call and got into the stranger's car. It's approximately 2.30 a.m. The body is found in the street at 3.50 a.m. The police put out a description in a bulletin seeking that driver, a husky male with light hair, 28 to 33 years old. Rosenda's sister-in-law, Mrs. Trinidad Virgil, told investigators that Rosenda had been separated from her husband and that she and Tony were quarreling as he had been served with divorce papers the previous day. Around 2 a.m., Mrs. Mondragon showed up at Tony's home and argued with him. She was intoxicated. When Rosenda left, Tony attempted to follow her. Tony Mondragon is booked on suspicion of murder he is questioned at length and given a lie detector test. The police find the other silk stocking one block from where the body was dumped. Several blocks further, children at play find Rosenda's blood-stained coat and dress. The police don't find her black suede shoes and undergarments. Concussion and strangulation are the causes of death, according to the coroner. Tony Mondragon tells police when he tried to follow Rosenda after she left his home, he never caught up to her, but he saw Rosenda get into a strange automobile at East Lake Avenue in North Maine. The police conclude Tony is not a suspect and he's released, and that's the end of the news cycle for this silk stocking murder. The most compelling Black Dahlia-related victim is one you have likely not heard of. Thirty-six-year-old Viola Norton was attacked late night Friday the thirteenth, nineteen forty-eight. Abducted and bludgeoned, her body is dumped in Limerick Park. Yet her experience merited only a few paragraphs on one day in the newspapers, Valentine's Day, 1948. Paul Norton expected to have dinner with his estranged wife. He waited in the restaurant. Viola did not show. Paul then went to her rooming house and waited for an hour. Viola did not show. It seems Viola is spending the evening drinking in a bar close to her rooming house. Viola leaves this bar at 2 a.m., and two men in their forties offer to give her a ride. Viola declines, and the men respond by throwing her in the back seat of their light blue sedan and hitting her in the head with a tire iron. Her abductors drive with Viola bleeding in the back seat to the west side of Los Angeles. This is a long journey. It's 2 a.m. Bars have just closed and police are on the lookout for drunk drivers and any odd behavior. And these two men take a 40-minute drive to Limit Park from Alhambra. Why? The best answer is that this is an attempted murder, a copycat crime of the Black Dahlia. I think it's clear that these two men planned a similar body dump murder and I doubt that they introduced themselves or asked Viola for her last name, but these men are driving toward Norton Avenue with Viola Norton in the back seat. Early Valentine's Day morning, a homeowner in Limit Park finds Viola in her backyard, unconscious with a coat thrown over her head. The house at 3997 West Side Avenue is five blocks east of Norton. Viola's stockings are ripped. One of her shoes is found near a pool of blood in the driveway of the adjacent house. Her empty purse is found three doors further up the street. Likely, Viola was thrown from the car where there is blood in the driveway at 3991 West Side Avenue. Then Viola escapes to the Schmidt backyard next door. Mrs. Norton has been struck in the skull with such force that her head is split open and her brain is visible. She is initially not expected to live. Paul Norton identifies Viola in the hospital. Her memory of the evening is very faint. She remembers two bits, a blue car and two men. I wonder why the two men don't leave the body on Norton Avenue. It's an interesting question. Are they lost in a strange neighborhood? They're from Alhambra. Or are they afraid of being framed for the first crime? Perhaps they believe people are watching the original Black Dahlia dump site. In any case, there's no further reporting on Viola Norton. She hasn't been raped. She survived the attack like Asher. This abduction and bludgeoning is not recorded by any newspaper as a Black Dahlia related lone murder because she lived. Yet it's very much related, as the dumping of the body in Limert Park suggests. This Black Dahlia-inspired murder has been attempted by two evil and brutal men who, in essence, are Black Dahlia volunteers. All of these women that we've discussed in this episode, Trellsdad, Mondragon, Asher, and Norton, were significantly intoxicated late at night and approached because they appeared to be easy prey. Elevated alcohol levels are critical factors in the Jeannie French and Evelyn Winter murders as well. Being sober didn't save Elizabeth Short or Louise Springer or Gladys Kern. Alcohol plays no role in those deaths, and to me, it is, however, indicative of a very different type of predator. The commonality for these unsolved crimes is that they're killed by strangers. And that's what made it so very difficult for the 1947 police, who start with the husband and then expand the investigation by looking for connections to the victim. Generally, when we examine the circumstances under which the two lone women victims who disappeared, Jean Spangler and Mimi Boomhauer, I assume their bodies were hidden because the killers were known to the victims, and connections could be made. If there's no body, there's no murder, just a missing person. And of all of these 1947 and 1948 victims, only the Black Dahlia case has a killer invest a significant amount of time and effort before, during, and after death with the victim. Of the four victims discussed in this podcast, Trell's Dead, Mondragon, Asher, and Norton, only Mondragon gets a newspaper moniker. The Herald calls it the silk-stocking murder. No other paper picks up on using that moniker, not the Daily News or the Valley Times, not the Metropolitan Star News or the Hollywood Citizen News, not the San Bernardino Sun or the Los Angeles Times. Interestingly, the silk-stocking murder as a moniker has been used before many times. There was a silk stocking murder headline reported by newspapers in 1916, Philadelphia, 1931, Georgia, 1932, Dallas, 1936, San Francisco, 1937, Manhattan, 1941, Toronto, 1949, Troy, New York, 1949, London, England, and there was a silk stocking murder in Sausalito, California in 1951. I point this out because these Examiner monikers purposely mimic the titles of pulp detective stories, whether we're talking about the Torso Murder or the Lipstick Killer or the Butterfly Murder. And that's why I ignore the narrative about flowers in the headlines. It plays no role. The moniker sounds like paperback noir titles because they're written for the same audience. There was, in fact, a detective novel of the month called The Silk Stocking Murder, published in 1928. Paperback pulp fiction offers a known and expected narrative. The victim is beautiful, young, naked, and unaware of the pending danger. Facts bend when the newspaper story is delivered in the form of fiction. The power of a mysterious moniker to create a sense of adventure and curiosity is very clear. Who is the Lone Ranger? Who is the Shadow? Who is Jack the Ripper? Because the Black Dahlia is the victim and not the killer, suddenly the mystery evolves into questions about the victim more than it normally would. So who is the Black Dahlia? How did she get her name? How could she be missing for seven days? Who did she know that could have tortured and severed her. Because the Black Dahlia has the moniker, Elizabeth's journey into death becomes more legend-driven than person-driven. And in the way that our minds work, a person must be important in order to have become a legend, so this noir narrative creates an expectation that there must be an important reason that the murder was not solved. And that creates a belief in the myths Of conspiracy in 1947. The idea that important people must have not wanted this case solved because of police corruption and payoffs and lawless mobsters. The fact is Elizabeth Short is not important. Elizabeth Short was a nobody and the Black Dahlia is the legend. This notoriety is incorrectly referred to as ironic that a wannabe actress becomes famous in death. Elizabeth could not become the Black Dahlia unless she was young and a nobody. The Black Dahlia legend would not exist as if Elizabeth Short were a 37-year-old mother of three. When speaking about the Dahlia myth, I've been equating myth with lies, defining a myth as a widely held but false belief, such as, Elizabeth Short was an actress, and Robert Manley was the last person to see her alive. Those are lies. There is another meaning of myth one every screenwriter knows, Joseph Campbell's A Hero's Journey. The myth as fable, a folklore that serves to explain a greater truth. And these myths that we create, the lies that we tell ourselves, does reveal much about how our culture comes to terms with disturbing and dark corners that exist in human behavior. Our culture is very much driven to unsolved murders, and so it's wise to think about this other type of myth. This story that Beth is a hopeful actress is certainly one that she tells herself, one that she writes about in her letters to friends and family, one she speaks about when introducing herself to strangers. She tells others that she dreams of Hollywood. If we define Beth by her actions, it evokes a myth of fear. As Elizabeth Short turns south on Olive Street the night of January 9th, 1947, Where is she going? There's no friend to greet her. She has no job, no home to go to. What is her purpose? What is her journey? How does a homeless drifter go home? Beth disappears into the unknown. And disappearing is a disturbing fate. Elizabeth Short walks into the dead of night. That's the powerful myth. a journey to nowhere imposing the discomforting idea that life has no meaning, death means nothing, there is no closure, only silence. Our myths succeed even when our dreams fail, as they must, because none of us are exactly who we think we are. And we all have this fear that we'll we'll not be able to reach our potential, and that fear is exponentially true, in the land of movie stars. The Hollywood false myth of the moth and the flame succeeds because it offers a digestible piece of the puzzle. It gives direction and brings purpose to Beth's actions and it elevates her death to a tragic level. She could have, should have been somebody, so tell us more. It's human nature to dream to be more than we are. For Elizabeth Short, We hear her dream, but we see her in action. Unless the dreamer is a doer, there is insufficient drama. A drifter passing is not tragedy. And so the story needs these myths. Hollywood did not make or break Beth. One of Beth's boyfriends in Medford said when interviewed, I told her I wanted her to wash the makeup off her face, wanted her to be her natural self. She was a loner and seemed to be floating, wandering with no direction. Remembering the out-of-town article with the headline Even Los Angeles was Shocked. Written by Jim Murray and published in the St. Louis newspaper, Beth, you recall, was described as trapped and haunted, desperate and unwanted. The underlying theme is that Hollywood is a den of sinners, as if Elizabeth Short is doomed as soon as she gets off the bus. This out-of-town myth is key in my final Black Dahlia volunteer example. Lita Gustin, age 21, argues with her husband on the evening of Sunday, June 15th. Lita is so enraged, she leaves the house and goes downtown and gets on an out-of-town bus. Her impromptu flight leaves her at the Fresno bus station at 2 a.m. With few options, Lita sleeps on a bench until daybreak and walks to town. A man in his 30s picks her up in a picnic area of a public park and drives her to a tavern and then to the outskirts of town and he sexually assaults her in an empty swimming pool and threatens to cut her, quote, like that other Los Angeles girl, that black Dahlia. An amazing statement that he, a local man, suggests Miss Gustin, a mother of two, deserves the black Dahlia fate because she too is from Los Angeles. So many men and women that confess, men that threatened... We meant to not get out of line or they'd end up like the Black Dahlia. And these thugs that threatened to copycat kill Viola and Norton, the volunteers that confessed. People still volunteer today when they dress up like the Black Dahlia for Halloween. And folks at the party will recognize the heavy pancake makeup, the flower in the hair, the bloody wound that is the Joker's smile. I imagine folks at the party don't consider the lack of wisdom in dressing up as a violently attacked victim. It's Hollywood after all, makeup is a career, and a wannabe has no days or nights off. You're auditioning 365 days a year. I wonder if those in costume believe that they're dressing in character because there was a black Dahlia movie. So it's allowed, no different than dressing up as uh, the evil clown Pennywise or... Uh, being a sexy zombie. The Black Dahlia is, in their minds, a movie character that plays Elizabeth Short in Death. Of course, no one goes to a costume party dressed like Nicole Simpson or Sharon Tate. Why is the Black Dahlia okay? And part of the answer is the trope of Elizabeth Short is distinctly different from the trope of the Black Dahlia. Elizabeth Short is the naive girl from the country that comes to the city to seek her fortune. The trope of the Black Dahlia is the Chanteuse, the doomed nightclub singer, such a common character in film noir movies, a sultry, melodramatic performer, worldly troubled and fragile, emotionally distant and sexually available as she beckons in the slit dress under the smoke-filled spotlight. The singer is beautiful and unattainable. She's the bird in the cage. The detective hero falls for her knowing the affair is doomed from the beginning. Think of Isabella Rossini in Blue Velvet. David Lynch knows what he was doing with that Dahlia-inspired look that he gives to the character Dorothy Valens. It's worth looking at the photos on my webpage that compare Isabella and Elizabeth. There's one more film noir to discuss a scene in Sunset Boulevard where William Holden's character arrives late to the New Year's Eve party being thrown by Jack Webb. Webb says to him, I almost reported you to the Bureau of Missing Persons. Fans, you all know Joe Gillis, the well-known screenwriter, opium smuggler, and Black Dahlia suspect. Billy Wilder started writing this script in mid-1948 and finished a year later. Think of this then, Elizabeth Short is killed in January of 1947, and after a year and a half, the horror has worn off by this parade of confessors and volunteers so that Black Dahlia's suspect is a throwaway humorous remark in the quintessential Hollywood movie. I enjoy how this impactful film noir celebrates the cynical black humor that's part of the unique language of Los Angeles culture. The movie uses the Black Dahlia suspect as a clever name for raconteur, a man about town. Remember the multiple times that newspapers describe a large number of police officers are going to bars in Hollywood and asking questions. When the L.A. P.D., for example, was looking for Lynn Martin, the paper said 1,000 officers followed the Black Dahlia nightlife trail. I imagine it would be a badge of honor for a certain type if the police quizzed them about being a Black Dahlia suspect. This noir angle to the myth of the Black Dahlia continues in a true crime pulp magazine as Dr. DeRiver publishes his thoughts on the Black Dahlia in the October 1948 issue of True Detective magazine. A man in Florida corresponds with Deriver and thus begins a situation that will end badly for everyone and will be the focus of the 13th and final podcast. I normally have one last thing, we have three. First, thank you for listening. I'm delighted to have so many listeners all over the world, Australia is the winner, with almost one third of my total listeners. But we have people in Mexico and Canada and Spain, Croatia, United Kingdom, South Africa, India and Japan. Wow, great to see. I do wanna make a special shout out to Scotland. My name is Scott, so I'm very pleased to see so many Scots are listening. I know that Scots like to keep score, so here is the current listener numbers. Glasgow 49, Edinburgh 0. Another win for Glasgow City of Art and Culture. I do appreciate the emails that I've received. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving review on the Apple podcast listing. The second quick thing is about nicknames. Jack Levin, the professor of sociology and criminology at Northeastern University in Boston, comments that once a killer is defined by a superstar moniker, the frequency of murder increases. It makes sense because a serial killer has been assigned a nickname. They want to embrace that identity. Therefore, they need to maintain and build their legend. Levin is referring to the category of organized serial killers because those are the ones that are media focused. The third thing is the mob myth. Gangster Jack Dragna lives in Lybert Park in 1947. 3927 Ubert Street is six blocks away from the Norton Avenue dump site. Dragna is a competitor to, to Mickey Cohen, and the hypothesis is that Cohen kills Elizabeth Short as a message to Dragna. It isn't. Six blocks? How is that a warning? Viola Norton is dumped in Limert Park. Is there any message for Jack Dragna in that? No. If a gangster wants to send a clear message, they would drop the body in the front yard. Or even worse, they would drop the bottom half of the body in the man's driveway. That would be most disquieting. What evidence exists that Dragna might have known Elizabeth Short? None. How had a successful mobster used her as part of his organization? She's an asthmatic, unemployed, flighty 22-year-old girl. Beth, who's lived in Hollywood for 98 days and doesn't smoke and doesn't drink, Beth is letting servicemen buy her dinner at the Italian Kitchen and Pig and Whistle. And she goes to live radio broadcasts on CBS. How could Elizabeth Short become someone that Jack Dragna would know? How close would she get to Jack Dragna in 98 days for him to care if she was alive or dead? There's no proof, there's no indication that Elizabeth played any role in the Los Angeles underworld of vice or gambling. There are some threads of evidence related to marijuana use in her circle of activity but Beth is not marked for a hit because she knows too much. What does Beth know? Who knows Beth? Bartenders, head waiters, head ushers, and roommates. There's no sign of an agenda in her murder other than the desires of one lost killer. The murder of Elizabeth Short is unsolved, just like 38% of murder cases are unsolved today. Until the next podcast.